and welcome to episode 65 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host, Adam C. McKinnon, joined, and I'm very happy to be joined by Shakia Taylor. She is a writer uh, at many publications, Baseball Prospectus, SB Nation. She is also a Sabre Award-winning contributor, author. I probably should have led with that. You're a Sabre Award winner. I'll just say that. And uh, an excellent, uh, just an excellent person overall in this industry. Shakia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for saying such nice things about me too. That's always cool. Flattery is my business. It's what I, it's what I do. <laughs> but uh, so... Uh, one one thing that I kind of wanted to I like to lead off sometimes with guests and I think it's important because on baseball social media and in our writing we get very caught up in the context of the immediate I kind of want to know a little bit about where your beginnings are with baseball and I'm going to parlay it in two questions here so how did you get started with the game and what is your relationship with the game now mm. so I I would say my first real introduction to baseball was my mom's from North Carolina and the Carolina Mudcats uh, were nearby. And I always thought the name was kind of fascinating, you know, like, oh, this this team has a very kooky name. <laughs> um, then when I was 10, but only like a week from my 11th birthday, we moved to Ohio and that was in the early 90s when everyone was a Cleveland baseball fan um, in Northeast Ohio. And so it was very easy to jump on the bandwagon. Um, it was 1993. My birthday is in late November. So I was, you know, coming into um, skeptical enthusiasm locally mm -hmm. and you know as an 11 year old a good way to make friends has always been sports whether you play them or you watch them like it's always been a good way and so i made some of my best friends right um, jumping on the bandwagon <laughs> well yeah that's you gotta start somewhere right like i mm -hmm. i myself was i was the other team you were probably a fan of in the 90s i was a braves fan growing up and uh, it was always easy to relate to people, you know, when you're when mm -hmm. you're such a formative age, right? I mean, it's like yeah, you still. Try I, I want to I want to clarify though, I've never been a Braves fan, that, never, not even in the nineties. <laughs> you good, you good. I, I'm a, I'm I, I've grown to acknowledge this. I question my own fandom sometimes. <laughs> Trust me, uh, and not really because of the guys on the field. Talk. What's yeah. I don't have much room to talk, but I'm just saying, you know, yeah. I'm not rooting for two teams that are going to stress me out. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 we, this is the podcast where we try to refer to our teams by the city name and then end it there. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so, so how do you, how would you describe, you know, as you, as you kind of grow up, as you grow up with the game, you know, I feel like baseball is one kind of unique in that way. We kind of, especially when you think about it, our, age group grows up with the game in a state of prominence, really in the nineties, it was, mm -hmm. it was a much bigger place than say like now, uh, how do you, how does your relate, how do you, how do you relate to it now? How do, how has it grown with the game for good or ill? That's, you know what I was just thinking that I didn't answer that the first time. Um, <laughs> I would say when I was younger, I really didn't think about the, 
anything related to baseball other than the game, other than the outcome of the game and the players involved. And it was like a pure fandom, an innocent fandom. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, just the way my thinking has evolved, the things I'm involved with have evolved. And so it's my thinking. And now I view the sport in a societal way now. Um, I don't just concern myself with, you know, wins and losses and does my favorite team have my favorite player and whatever. Now I'm thinking about things like, are the players being paid appropriately? Or how come minor leaguers have to be given free homes? Why don't you just pay them so they can afford their own homes? Why don't you do both? Why don't you give them a house and pay them a living wage? Why is there so much, you know, sexual harassment? So like, there is a lot attached to the game and people are always stick to sports, take politics out of my sports, rah, rah, rah. But how, how can any person with a brain not even pay attention? Like, how can you block out what's happening? I understand that like sports are escape and I'll be the first person to tell you, I don't watch regular TV shows a lot because there's always a sporting event on. And it's very passive TV for me. I can read and have the game on. I can, you know, play my Nintendo Switch while I have the game on. But it, there's always a way for me to engage with sports, but I can't just like unplug from life completely the way some people seem to be. So like my relationship with the game has definitely evolved. I enjoy it, but I demand more from it than I did when I was 11. It's It, it always cracks me up when I hear, and I talked about this on last week's show, uh, where, you know, as long as the stadium that they play in is paid for by, by my tax dollars or anyone's tax dollars, right? You can't say, keep it out of sports, right? You can't say Mm -hmm. that's, and that's at a very like high level, right? Like we're not even talking about the very deep levels of why you can never uh, untangle sports from politics, especially baseball. And you right. speak to that, you know, it's, it, it, we've, it's almost had this arc in American history, right? It was kind of right on time, right on par with the times for unfortunately a long time. And then, okay, it was, it was kind of a, a, um, I guess you could say like a, a I don't want to say trendsetter. It's not the word I'm, I'm looking for a more poetic word, something more appropriate mm-hmm. than that. But, uh, you know, and then it, and now it's kind of back in this uh, gully, you know, where now it's really legitly kind of behind. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like you said, it's kind of evolved my, it's almost like we have this unconditional love for the game itself, but everything around it just continues to, Absolutely. Yeah, the love us. remains, but the relationship changes. Yes. You know, it's, it, it is kind of like, I guess, two people who are involved with each other. And you're like, I still love you, but all of these things about you, I cannot. And while we don't want to become people who try to change our partners, we can force change on this game. Yes. We absolutely can. And I think it's healthy that fans of the game are evolving and we want something we love to evolve with us. It's, it's critical. And, and I, and representation is a huge, huge part of this. I am a absolute believer in it. And I'm curious, um, in 1981, eight, according to say 18.7% of players were, were black. 
highest mm-hmm. point in its history. And that's that alone is unfortunate, but we'll we'll divorce ourselves from that just for the sake of this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's steadily declined since then. Um, there's and for me, I look at things like institutional obstacles, like the insane pricing of travel ball. I have a half brother who's half my is nope, he's he's a little more than half my age. Um, <laughs> he and he went through the travel ball thing. I know how much that costs. It's there, you can't tell me anyone's like most anyone's not getting priced out of this. And, uh, you know, just the, like you talked about the minor leaguers, you know, people sit, you know, people sit there bewildered. Like, why are we losing black athletes to football and, you know, basketball? It's like, well, because you got to go six years before you make a living wage, like, you know, yep. <laughs> living wage, you got to work fast food jobs and no disrespect to fast food jobs, but you got to, you know, McDonald's 15 an hour, but like, you know, you got to work these jobs in the off season just to keep up. So yep. my, my question is, uh, do you think that, and I'm not talking about baseball cause base, baseball exists outside of MLB, but mm-hmm. do you think that MLB has abused its relationship with the black community to the point that we will ever see 18.7% again in our lifetime? Mm-hmm. I think you will. Maybe mm-hmm. not that high, maybe not quite that high, <laughs> but I think, I think there, there is a sort of resurgence right? It's a black baseball renaissance. Um, and I think taking, taking, just taking hold to the momentum that is starting, like we're not in the middle, we're definitely at the beginning, like, Mm -hmm. um, but it's important. We're seeing not just African-American, but people of the diaspora, coming into the game and being really fun and really exciting and really, really smart heads up ball players. And that's, that's important. And that's important in a way that people don't even realize like, yes, it's important because it's fun, but also it's important because look at who's watching, look at who is enjoying and not just for black kids or, you know, Latino children, it's everyone, everyone is watching and everyone is seeing, you know, the, the small differences, the changes, the flair, the blue hair, the jewelry, you know, the Latin music, all of that is super important, not just for the growth of those cultures, but for all of us, because we all become better educated. We all become better ambassadors of the sport with this kind of momentum and I do think we will see some change I mean I'm doing my small part in trying to you know help with youth baseball you know in Chicago where I live I'm trying to raise money uh just to get some kids to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum I've I've tried to help kids get equipment before I think it's important that I talk a lot about baseball as a community and that's internationally not just you know in the u.s and it's a community that definitely stands up for itself but we're a little divided right now Mm -hmm. on just cultural things you know bat flipping who cares imagine (laughs) making this the hill that you die on imagine or right like it's like if, if this is the way that you relax 
you're doing it all wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, why is this upsetting to you? So I do think there's change. I do think it'll be a while. It's, it's slow coming. There's efforts. I don't want to like completely knock the league. They're, they got some stuff going on. You know, they got the players Alliance who they're working with a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that in, in itself is something that we would have never seen before. I don't think without recent events, um, we would have seen the players of color decide to become a united voice. I really don't. And that's going to be critical to the future. Yeah. And, and, and I wonder too, you know, cause change, change needs helping hands along the way. You know, we, and the most uh, surface level example I can give is, is Branch Rickey orchestrating Jackie Robinson's entrance uh, to, to the, to uh, major league baseball. And I, I wonder, you know, I, you also see the other end of this too, where I think back to Kurt Flood, where uh, he was adamant that if he had his players, if the players had stood up with him, uh, his career would not have gone as it wouldn't have ended the way that it did. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm a believer in that too. I think that mm-hmm. they really kind of hung him out to dry and there was absolutely racial, racial tones to that. Maybe probably pretty obvious racial tones to that in some ways. But I wonder from, from your perspective, where, where does that helping hand come from? Is it from the players themselves? Is this is a strictly, do you see this, uh, this renaissance? Cause I think that's a good way to put it. Do you see this just having to grow from the bottom and bust its way through the confines or does someone from the confines have to kind of help lead the, spread the way a little bit? I think you got to go a little bit of both, a little mm-hmm. bit from column A, a little bit from column B. I think that those of us who are outside of, you know, the corporation that is baseball, right? Um, we have to do things like, like help. Sometimes that means sponsor a kid. Sometimes that means drop off equipment. Sometimes that means buying a t-shirt that helps pay for these things. But we have to do things that help widen the pipeline we have to not contribute to like just the toxic racist culture that exists around, you know, the sport. Um, And I think the pipeline has to be open. So from one side, the league has to say, we are going to create these opportunities for people who would not normally have them so that we could create our own pipeline so that we have youth who are interested so that we're contributing to the communities that we want these you know youth to come from but the community itself also has to participate right it has Mm -hmm. to want these things and so i think it's it's a two-way street um major league baseball and all of its entities have to make the people who are not involved feel welcome they have to make them feel wanted and you know there's so many ways to do that and one like i said is just squash the weird cultural stuff like right let's you know let's get rid of coded language and or let's shame people who use it right. let's let's automatically let, let's stop that let's let's maybe be a little you know transparent in the way we suspend players for things right um like there's like i could just rattle off a bunch of things that 
would automatically impact interest in the game if people felt it was fair, if people felt the music wasn't so bad, you know, like if people felt that they could go and it not cost a million dollars, like not just to participate in the game, but to watch. Right. It costs so much money. If you have a family of four, good luck. Yeah, like, yeah. I, mean, I get a, I get a, I have a, a daughter, and taking her to a game, I have to plan it financially to make sure. Mm-hmm. I, you know, news newsflash: I'm not rich. Uh, you know, <laughs> and like the the thing that I that I wonder again, it goes back to those institutional things. It's things that have been just been that way because the opportunity to make money was there, and mm-hmm. where it, as a game where we're pricing out. You know, the uh, we're pricing out a, a huge, you know, community. And then we sit there and wonder why, oh, you know, we have uh, I am a believer in, in this kind of segues a little bit. Um, I'm a believer that not all messengers are who you want them to be. But also mm-hmm. at the same time, there's there's sort of like I call them like anti villains in a way. They sort of occupy this space left because we couldn't do better. And I yep. look at someone like I look at someone like Trevor Bauer sometimes like that. Like there's a lot, a fucking lot I don't like about Trevor Bauer. He's a broken but, clock. Right. He's right twice a day. That, so like so like I've I've said this to my co-host Jim. I've said it to anyone that would listen to me. If he was like a one like just a little likable and not so much <laughs> of a dick. He would be making he I, I'd buy a jersey like this. This guy is, makes a lot of sense twice a day. So I, I and I wonder like, yeah, like sometimes it's like this is in everybody's like, oh, opines like this isn't the person we want to do this. Well, this is what we because we've terrible iced out. Though. Right. Yep. He is a terrible representative, but we've iced out so many people and we've iced out so many other more uh, respectable voices that could say the same things. Yes. This is what we're left with. And, uh, and I think, and I wonder what, I wonder if you see that, like you, you kind of made the point there. Like, you know, you see it sometimes it's like, yeah, okay. You make a lot of sense, but you're still an asshole. It's so with him, I never say his name, so I'm not going to do it now. Fair enough. Um, I've only referred to him as the alt-right hander. Um, and that is pretty much all I could say about him. Like his values are not ones that I share. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is what makes when he's right feel so wrong. You know, because otherwise we wouldn't care. I don't genuinely believe that jerks are inherently bad. It's what people are jerks about. Right. It's what, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. because I, admittedly, I probably have my moments and I definitely can come off like a jerk over email because I'm probably typing way too fast. But <laughs> you were very you know, pleasant like, in our email exchange. I, I, I need to put that out that. to the public. That was <laughs> you were you were cool. But I just think like if his values were different, we'd be having a completely different conversation. Mm-hmm. That's that's just all it is. And, you know, you have people like Adam Jones who right. were saying the things that needed to be said just at the wrong point in time. Apparently, if he was saying all that stuff now, maybe we'd be looking at a different ending to his career yeah. or to his major league baseball career. You know, no, you're right. Um, yeah, yeah. And I also think we have to get away from associating the message with the messenger needing to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this person is saying all the right things, but they don't win enough. Yeah. Their skin's too dark. Mm-hmm. 
you know, whatever. It's like, but if they're saying the right things, none of the other stuff has any bearing on the message. But that's just the society we live in. You know, if someone pretty says something, we're more likely to listen. And that sucks. Yeah, it's 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 so unfortunate uh, how much melanin has to do with 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 whom we listen to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and, and it does speak to, you know, somebody made the point and I, I kind of like had to shake my head and say, you know what, you're probably right. It's like, there's a lot more Trevor Bowers that wear uniforms that mm-hmm. the, than there are Tim Anderson's. And I think that's, that's something that we're like, you know, it's go like you made the point. This isn't also a change that happens overnight because you're also talking about multi-millionaires, you know, there's, there's probably, and I'm, and, and I'm, I, I say this with all delicacy just for the point is there's probably people that, uh, don't look like Trevor Bauer that think like Trevor Bauer. When you get up in that stratosphere of tax bracket, it's not, you're not immune to that. You know what I mean? And, and I, and that's, and that's not to, you know, I don't know that. I don't know enough. I mean, anyone of any, to back you up here, anyone of any background can be of any particular value Correct. Set, yes. Right? It's not a monolith. And yeah, like they can be of any, any, any value set. I definitely don't subscribe to the one type of person thinks a particular mm-hmm. way because Lord knows that will have you out here messed up. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But I, I I do think, you know, that's what it comes down to. It's about the values. And to have a culture shift, you, you, we're not just talking about five or six teams with 10 or 15 people. Right. We're talking about organizations with hundreds, thousands of people even who work in them that all kind of funnel into another, you know, corporation that has hundreds of people (laughs) and so you know it's like i i was talking to someone else about this and i compared it to like a ship like we've all seen the titanic Mm -hmm. and it's just this like slow moving thing so it's going to take a while and obviously we like it to move faster we would we don't understand what's taking so long but i do think getting people out of whatever their thoughts are, whatever their value set is, it takes, it takes some time. Sure. It's, it it's happen overnight. It's generational. I mean, it took, mm-hmm. if you think about it in some ways, we are about, uh, I'm doing the math in my head. We're roughly about halfway from the time from baseball's and I'm using air quotes here inception to Jackie Robinson and from Jackie Robinson to now. We're not like, we're about halfway. So like, we're only, we're only, you know, it's, it takes a long time. It took 80 years to get there, you know? The way I explain it is my grandmother is older than like, than the time it's been Mm -hmm. since Jackie Robinson debuted. Right. By like 20 something years. So you know, like right. I, when people hear it as in like, there are people alive who remember when he was not playing, when they're like, when he was not in the league, it's a little more stunning. Or when you try to explain to people like the civil rights movement, didn't it wasn't a hundred years ago. Right. Like, right. It wasn't that long ago. And, and that's what I think we have to come to terms with time, our perception of time and how fast we expect things to happen. And there are things that I do believe that we get upset about, you know, that they could do something sooner. They could do something like the suspensions. 
that would take one off season to fix. Right. Um, or the bat flipping one off season to fix. Yeah. Just that's, automatically. <laughs> like, that, that, that's that, like, I, this is, I, I, I think about unwritten rules are that you can write a rule that right. unwrites the unwritten rule. That's, Somebody wrote somebody wrote the unwritten rules and therefore someone else can write new unwritten rules to undo the old unwritten rules. It's unwrite them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, um all right, so this this is like where I pivot a little bit. Uh because okay. I do because I do want to ask you cuz um I loved your piece on Effa Manley and okay. uh, from uh, that you wrote for SB Nation. And I I enjoy baseball writers because this is a very personal sport for a lot of us, you know, like in a, in a, in a deep way, because it is, you know, it is us growing up and identifying with people. It is, it is me growing up and not wanting to play a sport, but I saw Mark Lemke wear glasses, uh, in the nineties. And therefore I thought I could play baseball. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's little things like that. It's, it's the, the only time my wife has ever seen me. If you ask my wife, the most depressed she'd ever seen me. I can tell you the day it's 2013 and, and Juan Uribe puts one over the fence and Craig Kimbrell sitting in the bullpen. I, you know, it's, it's these checkpoints on, on your life. And when you talk about Effa Manley, like I could literally like, I could, it, it was so, I could tell it was a very personal thing for you to write. And, and the, and the way it's written, I can almost read you wrestling with something that I, I that wrestling with her so specifically her selectiveness of racial identity, mm-hmm. and I wanted to I just wanted to hear you talk about that piece, and you know I can see your thought process going through the piece, but I just kind of wanted to hear you like you know talk about that piece. Well, that one <laughs> that's an interesting one. I I feel like every time I talk about it, I say something new mm-hmm. not different but new that's great um so i went to let me go back a little bit further sorry mm-hmm. so i was on twitter one day and i was just talking about things that i would write about or i would like to write about and it was kind of suggested sort of someone it was uh lindsay adler mm-hmm. um of the athletic and she's like i like to see something from you on the manlies and I was like, hmm, I feel like that wouldn't be a fun story. But I thought about it and I thought about it. And then I started kind of digging. And this had to be 2019. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm digging, I'm digging. And I'm like, oh, man, well, this is interesting. You know, because everything that I knew about her was just she was a black woman who owned a Negro League team she, you know, was the first person to demand that she be paid for her player, um, Larry Doby, leaving the Negro Leagues and going to MLB. Um, it was just this whole like, okay, I can do this. This is interesting, you know, whatever. And um, I went to London to uh, cover the Bears, the Chicago Bears playing the Raiders. And I met with my um, editor at SB Nation for lunch. And we talked about the piece and he's like, I think, you know, we'd like this. Let's let's check in and see where you're going. So, you know, I, I'm in another country and 
I have pitched a story. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to start working on it. I go to my hotel room and I'm just messing around, messing around. Nothing. It took me months of like digging into the story because once I found that uh, University of Kentucky interview with her, the oral history interview mm-hmm. that was recorded in the 70s, um, if you have not read the piece, this is where I tell you, I linked to the University of Kentucky oral history interview right. in the piece. I always try to share my sources so people can go digging themselves. But that interview is a recording. It's Effa Manley herself speaking. And she says, completely unprompted, but I was really white. And I remember being like, wait, hold up, hold up, wait, wait, wait. Like, <laughs> Stop the tape. <laughs> like, let me run that back a little bit. And I play it again. And beautifully, Kentucky has provided a transcript. So you just go to the next tab and you can read the interview. And I decide to just stop listening, but to read it because I'm a reader anyway. And I mm-hmm. wanted to just kind of absorb what she said. And then I found like there were articles written about her after she passed away, but in magazines that like mainstream would not be paying attention to because they were, you know, African-American magazines, Ebony, Jet. And they refer to her after she passed away as a white woman. And I found that so interesting because they embraced her previously, mm-hmm. but after she's, we'll say outed herself, um, there was definitely not good or great feelings about that. I think everyone was conflicted. And even I didn't walk away from that. Like, Oh my God, if a manly was this or that, I still feel like the question we'll never know. We'll never know. You know, um, Historians don't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even had some people ask, why does it matter? Well, I kind of think it does matter. It doesn't make her less important. It doesn't make her more important. I just think it matters. I think it matters in in ways that we don't think about, right? Like, one, no one talks about the way we process race or how we discuss race because, well, we all have just accepted that race is how you look. We haven't thought about the fact that you know, it could be social, it could be how you were brought up. And that seems to be what she believed is that she was raised in a mixed race family. She dated and married black men. She lived in a black community. Like she was a part, this was her community. And she did a lot. Like it wasn't like Effa Manley was just a, you know, owner of a team sitting on her bum, right. you know? Yeah. She was she an active owner. Been, yeah, she was active and she did a lot of positive things. Mm-hmm. She wanted the conditions for players to be better. She had an anti-lynching campaign at her mm-hmm. ballpark. You know, she advocated for women of color to be hired at department stores in New York. Like she did all of these things mm-hmm. that you just can't. She's undeniable. Right. Don't no shop where you can't don't don't work where you can't shop. Can't shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's she's undeniable. So ultimately, no matter how I felt about the complications with, you know, her race or ethnicity or whatever, I feel her impact remains. And maybe part of her impact is that we don't know. We don't know anything except this woman did what needed to be done. And, you know, 
her page in history is so interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. there aren't very many pictures of her. There aren't very many. All we know is that she came and she loved baseball. I love that line, but it's true. She only wanted us to know that she loved baseball, and that's kind of how she left it. It's what I I agree with all of that, and I think what <laughs> what I found most interesting about your piece, and this is probably a total coincidence. When we uh, when we made this appointment, I just so happened to be listening to the um, uh, uh, the Black Diamonds podcast, the episode mm-hmm. about Effa Manley, mm-hmm. and I was struck by the difference in tone. Of the story, because I can listen to Bob Kendrick. I could listen to two people I could listen to just read the phone book are Buck O'Neill and Bob Kendrick. So naturally, (laughs) I've heard every episode of that podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I found it, it, it all, her story is so complicated that you can present it like Bob does. And this is not to disparage Bob, by the way. Uh, He's a wonderful person. Uh, He presents it as almost mythological. Like, you know, here is Effa Manley mm-hmm. and she took Branch Rickey to task and, you know, all these other things. And, and it was, it's wonderful. And then I read your piece and, and what I found was you're not trying to answer any questions, but it's almost like in a way it, it, I finished the piece with the feeling that you want answers because it's not, it's, it's, I agree with you. Her magnitude, the quantity of her importance does not change. I don't think based mm-hmm. on her race, how it fits in the puzzle, I think probably does, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And so I, I was, that was the part of about your piece in particular that I was most struck by is just that I, I finished the podcast thinking, well, that was a really awesome story. And then I finished <laughs> your piece with just like, well, what the fuck is it? Effa? Like, I, come on. <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely walked away from that piece. Like I'm never going to know this. Right. Like, I'm never going to have answers. Right. Um, but I think that's kind of the fun part. And I think, I think you can tell the story of Effa Manley and be incredibly honest and people still be interested. Right. That is, I think a great thing. Like, I I don't know. Our heroes are imperfect. Mm-hmm. They are not infallible. They make mistakes. They do things. But they also, depending on how old you are and who you are, they lived in a different time. Right. And I tried to talk about that in the piece. Things were different. Ever Manley could have been, you know, passing as a Black woman to save the people she loved. You know, she could have been passing to save herself or, you know, whatever. There's so many different things. And, you know, you have to, you know, again, things were illegal that aren't illegal now. Um, And there's just so many layers to it that I tried not to accuse or, you know, Mm -hmm. say that she did something malicious. But I did try to point out that, for a person like me, it did make me feel a way. And I, and I've, you know, I've seen all the, you know, what does it matter? Why is everybody focused on her race? <laughs> well, we're not focused on her race, but come on, it's interesting. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting when you hear, you hear something for a number of years and then you hear something different and then you you hear it from the source, but then other people are like, but she was probably lying. Why would I think she was lying? Right. <laughs> it, it's it, race is a such an important 
pillar of the story, but it's not mm-hmm. the whole story. Like exactly. the, the the house does not fall down uh, without the race answer. You know, it, it doesn't it, right. do, it doesn't collapse on itself. And and you could you can't always say that. But it, her story mm-hmm. was so is so significant and so impactful and, and, uh, it almost overcomes the, uh, obstacle of the race being the linchpin of the story. It doesn't hold everything together. It's, it's, if you were to tell it in a vacuum, it's still incredibly interesting. And, um, and, and I just, I wanted to commend you because that in the same time, it's almost like you need to hear Bob's story and then you need to read your piece to understand the complexity of it. I, I, I do. I, 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 I can see that. I encourage everybody to, to, to listen to Black Diamonds because it's a great show, by the way. Mm-hmm. And you can and, you know, to read your piece because it's a great piece. But it because it it makes you but do Bob's first because it makes you like really kind of like it gives you the feel good. Like, oh, this is just a really good story. And then like <laughs> you read it. And it's just like, oh, shit, this is like way more, way more. In I it. think. I, I, I think Bob Bob gives the um, the educational uh, rated E for everybody. Yes, you know <laughs> this this version will go over well with any audience. He gives you a very good you know F a manly primer. Yes, but then I'm like, okay, so let me tell you about F. Right, you know, like <laughs> like. <laughs> Let me tell you. He's the instruction. He's the instructional video at the front of the class. You're the kid in the back of the class. Like, yo, listen, this is, (laughs) this is what's really going down. (laughs) I mean, I'm that person who I'm at your new job. And on your first day, I tell you how you're supposed to do it. And then I tell you how I do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like, and, and that's okay. I, what I really love about, you know, baseball stories is, the narrative is always so important. There's always a narrative. There's always a story and the storyteller, right? Like Mm -hmm. we all appreciate a person connected to the sport. Who's going to tell us a good story. It doesn't matter if the story is true or not. Like look at how many like baseball myths we all believe because it's like, well, no one's saying it didn't happen or, you know, how most recently Twitter was on fire with people discussing whether or not Babe Ruth was black. And I'm like, oh, we're going to do this again. Yeah, right. You this know? is a this is a thing. It's It goes in cycles. You know, it just resurfaces. Right. I'm like, but this has been researched. It's in books. Right. Let's all read more books. Right. But, uh, it's like the Internet made of a tree, guys. Right. You know, it's it's it, it's I always love baseball stories because they blend the objective and the subjective. Um, mm-hmm. I love like my all time favorite baseball story. And I could hear, I can listen to Buck O'Neill tell this story a thousand times and I don't care who don't care how many more times if, um, it's the Josh Gibson, you know, I'm going to walk everybody, get the, the lick, you know, get the elixir and then strike you out on three pitches. All time favorite story. If you don't know it, go find it. Cause I'm not going to try to tell it. Buck's got to tell it. Um, <laughs> But like, but it's it, what I love about baseball stories like that is that it's they it's the same ninety feet to first base. It's the same sixty feet to six inches. It's the mm-hmm. it's the objective. You can paint the picture right away. You can at least paint the background right away. Then the rest of it you can fill in with your own exaggerations and things of that nature. And I I think that's what I love about baseball stories. I have a favorite baseball story. Tell me and- what it is. 
it's not one that is necessarily told by someone. It's just a story in general that I would encourage people to look up. And I feel like a lot of people know, but a lot of people don't. It's the story of Satchel Paige in the Dominican Republic. It is my all-time favorite baseball story because Satchel tells this story and it's so colorful, like he was, you know? Um, Is this the one with the dictator? Yes. Yes. Yes, where where he paints a picture of, you know, p- pitching a game under duress. There's soldiers with guns and they're waiting <laughs> to kill me if we don't win this game. Like it's, you know, it's it's it's, you know, a dictator giving these guys $30,000 to come and play and they leave the Negro Leagues and they get banned for leaving. It's just a phenomenal story to me. It has all the elements of a great movie. Mm-hmm. It would be a great movie. Um, but it's my all-time favorite just because Satchel Paige, no one knew how old he was. No one knew, you know, they they knew what they thought they knew, but he, he always had a great story. Right. It's, it, it, ah, man, I could go on. I could go on all day. I could go on all day. Um, <laughs> Shakia, I am so appreciative of you taking some time to come talk to me and uh, share your share your knowledge and your thoughts. I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. Um, thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me.